Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, produced by Kieran Nemont, and here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, folks, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, where emerging creatives and producers can gain insight from established and respected producers about what it takes to become successful in film, TV, or theater, or any industry that has a producer. I'm your host, Curtis Brown, and of course, I am joined by the editor, mixer, and co-host who says a total of 10 words in the show, Kieran Nemont. Hello. Or one word, that's fine too. Um, <laughs> here we are at our second episode, a milestone for the I Want to Be a Producer podcast. Biggest show of our life, as I like to say, Kieran. Actually, I always say that before all the shows that I do, no matter what. Like if I'm doing, like when we were doing Grease, I would always walk around the, uh, backstage before the show. I'd be like, biggest show of our life, everyone. Because you never know what could happen. You know, I'm actually starting to realize like how morbid I am in my life. Like I made my Twitter handle at what Curtis did underscore. So if I die, people can just fill in what I did before I pass. <laughs> Um, I know. Remember I spoke about therapy in the teaser? This is a little insight. But uh, on a brighter note, our guest today uh, was someone who really gave me an opportunity when I was in college to understand how important new work was and what the process of creation and workshopping was. Uh, we spoke about mentors, traits of producers, the biggest challenge the producing career faces today, and his journey from start to finish with the international hit musical Come From Away. So take it away. And now we are joined by a very, very special guest. When you think of new musicals in Toronto, you think of this guy. My trackpad broke on my laptop because of the amount of scrolling I had to do to get through this person's achievements in music theater over the last 15 to 20 years. He's a Toronto producer and a former lawyer. He was the valedictorian of his class at the University of Western Ontario. He ran for member of parliament in the riding of London North Centre, where he was one of the youngest candidates in the country. He, after being called to the Ontario Bar in 2002, he made the transition from practicing law to producing theater in the city of Toronto. After numerous successful productions. He established the Canadian Music Theatre Project, which is the international incubator for the development of new musicals at Sheridan College. This is where he conceived the idea for the international hit, Come From Away. Have you heard of it? In 2018, on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen and all Canadians, he was awarded the Meritorious Service Cross by the Governor General in Canada for his role in creating Come From Away. Not a big deal. He has allowed the ice to be broken at auditions across the country faster than the ice melting in Alaska because of the amount of notable credits he has provided for artists on their resumes. Among a list of other significant accomplishments, he's the current producing artistic director of the Canadian Music Theatre Project, a producer at Sheridan College, a Tony nominee, an Olivier winner, and he even jumped out of a burning bus for William Shatner. Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Michael Rubinoff. Thank you. Uh, my parents are going to love that intro. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we have some listeners, your parents and my parents. So That's we've got four. That's not bad. This is, a, this is a reunion. This is so joyous to sit down with a, a former student and a distinguished alumni. Oh. Uh, Sheridan. That's so kind. Well, as I said, just previously when we were talking about that, we have such, it's such a journey. I remember you coming into our first class halfway through the second year. Um, and also one significant moment that I always remember is when we sang Welcome to the Rock the very first time, I'll never forget. I was sitting next to Sam Piper and you were, you, I remember we hit the final note and you literally were ecstatic and you ran and grabbed your phone and you walked out of the room immediately and i was like wait i think we might have something here it, i will never forget that I, I i that is such a memory seared in my mind of be, you know i usually like to come into the room at the end of the week and just sort of see what what everybody's been working on and i'll never forget being like here's the opening number 
and just being floored. And I was with, we had a visiting professor, Dr. Zachary Dunbar, who was at the Royal Central School. He was visiting us. I said, come in and hear this song, hear this show. And Zachary now works at the University of Melbourne. And he and his uh, husband were my dates to the opening of Come From Away in Melbourne. So it was this wonderful full circle story of dragging them into that time to hear the song for the very, we were the first audience ever to hear that song. Uh, you were all of it. You got to give context about why you were there. Well, 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 because I, well, I was in my second year and then I got cast in the show and I remember what was the show that was opposing it? What was it? What, what was on the uh, other side? At that time it was, Oh, when we did, that was the Sweeney, Sweeney Todd. Todd. Yeah. Oh, Sweeney Todd. Sweeney. And I knew I was not going to be in Sweeney Todd. I literally looked at myself and I was like, wait, I am not meant for this show. I was like, maybe the look, but I was like, mm, I think I'm not, I think I'm going to be in one of the new musicals. Well, I always say, I'll never forget, especially when you're in musical theater school and it's Sweeney Todd or this thing called Come From Away. And I felt like how disappointed you all were to be in this thing called Come From Away and not make it onto the main stage in Sweeney Todd. I think you got some pretty good bragging rights. <laughs> Which character did you first give life to? Uh, Oz and Bob Oz. when they were the first, but they were two characters at one at one point, right? And then it went, and then my, th well, the third workshop, but my second time doing it, it was uh, Oz and Joey, the drunk, the drunk on the plane. And it was, uh, it's again, it's, I, I honestly believe that if I wasn't put in those new musicals, I don't think I would have any interest in creating work or producing. And I think the Canadian Music Theatre Project, we're going to get it all into that. Um, but just that, that's such an important program. And it's such a thing that can change the path of so many young minds that it is possible to have a piece of work succeed and that your fingerprints can be on it, even at opening night on Broadway. It, your things that you make in that rehearsal room, they do last. I say this all the time. And Whenever I see the show, and I've obviously been very privileged to see it all over the world, I always think of you guys. Like I'm getting, I'm getting like chills and emotional thinking about it. I watch that show and I forever hear your voices. I forever see these little moments or something in the script that I know was created from this enthusiasm and this joy that were in the development of that piece and just you all working with David and Irene and, you know, I'll never forget it. I, 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 like I said, it's always with me and I, and it's true to anybody listening. Like if you're a student working on new work, um, it, it's one of the most joyous thing you can bring the skills that you've learned to, and it makes a difference. And I think one of the greatest, you know, there's so many great nights around come from away, but one of the greatest nights was when we had so many of you at the last preview of the original company in Toronto. And we had that beautiful night where you were watching the show and David and Irene and I were watching everybody that could join us watching the show. And then we had that great reception with the real people and the Broadway company and you, you, you know, all the, everyone that could be there who really first gave life to those roles. I, I have a picture from it and it's, it's such a special night on the journey. Well, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about your journey. Like you were a valedictorian and then you got called to the bar. And then, so what sparks your interest from practicing law to start producing theater? So <laughs> your introduction referenced something hilarious, which I don't get introduced very much by is, is, is um, 
you know, working with William Shatner. So, uh, you know, I, I was, until your podcast, I was a child actor of uh, No Consequence. And um, I, I, you know, I did some film and television and um, um, I, I loved it. And I, you know, at summer camp and school, I loved doing musical theater. But I think I had this other passion of politics and, you know, being a lawyer. And that was, you know, my father's a lawyer. And that was kind of the path. And, you know, my last year of law school, I was very lucky that I had a job all on articling position all lined up. The firm was like, have a good time. And, you know, I ended up um, producing and directing Blood Brothers. Uh, that was kind of like the big part of my my last year of university. And it just put the bug back in me to to want to produce. I mean, I, I go back to everybody has their like gateway show. Like when right. I was 13 and I saw Les Miserables at the Royal Alexander Theater, there was something so profound. I mean, you know, I always like, I see the, the lightning bolt struck me when the bishop uh, gave Valjean the candlesticks and there was kindness and redemption and second chances. And I was like, I want to be a part of that. But I think I, I think I always knew <laughs> I wasn't a great actor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people that are very kind in my life that say I've always had a great voice. But I, I, I was more interested in the business uh, of commercial theater, and that I lived in a country and a city where there was one big commercial producer, um, the Mervish Organization. Mm-hmm. Um, led by David Mervish, who has been a mentor and a guide and just incredibly generous to me from the very beginning of my producing career. Um, and I was interested in exploring more, more of a mid-sized commercial theater. Was there, was there another room for just an, another way of doing things with, with, you know, different shows that I could bring? So that bug, I think, leaving Blood Brothers, I, I, I just loved it and wanted to continue it. So, so I took the leap. And so you spoke that David Mervish, he, did you reach out to him? Like, was he one of you, one of your like mentors? Cause I know you've reached out to Cameron McIntosh and you wrote him a letter and he told you to trust your taste and to never, he, I think it was never put your money in, right? Trust your taste. Well, no, right. he had said, so I, I guess when I was very meticulous law student and doing my research on commercial producing, I started to write producers around the world. I mean, there, there weren't many at the time. This is, you know, late nineties, early 2000, mm-hmm. just wanting to meet with, with people. And I had written David Mervish a letter and he was very gracious and accepting and taking the time to, um, you know, just to, to answer my questions and tell me about the business. Um, he, again, he was, he was, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I don't mind saying this publicly. It's a great thing. It happened a long time ago, but I, we, you know, his father, Ed, the legendary Ed Mervish, used to have an annual birthday party. And I was doing my first non-equity show, a production of Chorus Line, and we were invited to perform uh, at this birthday. And then Ed came out with the cast. And this was after my meeting with David. And David, you know, said, you know, how can I help you? Um, he said, you know what, do you want to stuff your handbills in the Lion King programs at the Princess of Wales? And I just was like, floored. I was like, absolutely. I think we only had like a thousand total. Like, right, that but still, like, like you know, 16, no. But I think that theater's sixteen hundred or fifteen hundred. So I was just like, I said to my team, I'm like, okay, let's get these printed. Right. And, and I have to say, one of the things that I will say for people listening to this that want to be producers, there is a generosity in in 
time and support. And at that moment, and I know a lot of us feel this way and I felt it, you feel so invisible and, and like a nobody. And, uh, you know, everybody has that fraud complex and you're just trying to do a great thing and it's really hard. And the fact that David just had that generosity to support me in that way was huge. And I have to say, um, it, it's, it's been joyous because of course, um, they're the Toronto producers on Come From Away and that group have just been such great friends and so supportive. And, and you need that to build your confidence, certainly when you're starting. I, I will tell the, quickly the Cameron McIntosh story. You know, being obsessed with Les Mis and he's the most successful commercial producer on the planet. Mm-hmm. I, um, I wrote him a letter and uh, I thought, like, <laughs> you know, this is old school, like mailed a letter. Right. Um, and, and heard back, like, right away. I guess email. Maybe email had just started. I don't know. Maybe I got an email back. I was going to London right after I wrote the bar exams, and I was invited to come meet with him. And, again, he was he was so generous in his time. And I just remember sitting on the couch in his beautiful office with all this lame Miz memorabilia, which I was obsessed with. And he said, um, you know, so you want to produce commercial theater? Two things common sense and trust your own taste. And I've just, that sort of stuck with me. Now here's the other full circle moment when I'm living this bizarro dream. I knew he had seen Come From Away on Broadway and that he liked the show, that he was a fan of the show. And when it came to our West End opening, I was told he was going to be there. Oh, wow. And, and I, I knew somebody who, who knew him and his husband quite well. And, and I said, look, I, there's one thing I want to happen on that opening night, I'd love to just say thank you. Like here we are nearly 20 years later, that, that meeting took place, believe it or not, six days before 9-11 happened. Like that, that's the historical timeline. So I really just wanted to thank him. And um, this, this person said, okay, we'll make it happen. And when I went down into the theater that night, that she was talking to somebody who happened to be his, his husband, Michael Laporte-Trench, who is a, a photographer and who, you know, back in the day, you couldn't go to YouTube, you couldn't see clips. I lived Les Mis through Michael's photos, so I was so happy to meet him. And there were just all these people that were just committed to making this meeting happen. And maybe like seven or eight minutes before Curtain, I was called over and there he was. And I, I just said, you know, um, you won't remember this, but, you know, I, I relayed the story I just told when I met him and how inspirational that was to me. And he looked at me and he looked around the theater and he looked back at me and he said, well, you're a commercial producer. And that was, uh, I, I can't tell you, in addition to seeing the extraordinary West End cast to come from away that night, was thrilling to have that to have those moments are just yeah dreamy. like a, a, they're career moments when stuff like that happens and it always seems to happen when it's all full circle i mean that seems to be a common theme in our conversation so far is all these like full circle moments and i mean i can see you already passing passing what david mervish did and these guys coming and inviting you meetings coming on podcasts like you're already doing that now did any did any business decisions that they gave advice did that inform a lot of decisions you made early on yeah, I mean, it certainly did. I think, I think, you know, I, I again remember that meeting in Cameron with Cameron too, realizing that, and he had said this too. You have to do it. I mean, one of the things about producing, you can read it in books, you can meet people, but it is one of those things that you have to just do, and it's scary. Um, you know, there's financial risk. Um, there's a lot of people. 
And, you know, if I look back, you know, now 20 years to what I was doing at the beginning, there's no way I would have done it. Like, you know, you're young, you're carefree. I was very, very lucky that I, I started my career as a lawyer. You know, you got, you, you sort of leaked that old adage of, you know, that, that advice is from Max Bialystok, the first, the first two rules of producing. Uh, number one, never put your own money, money in, the, in show. the show. And number two, never put your own money into the show. <laughs> and I was privileged enough to do that. And, and I, I've lost a lot of money in the, in the theater. Um, at the beginning of my career, I call that my, the tuition for my PhD in, in producing. But, you know, Cameron, you have to do it. And I agree with him. And, and same with David. It was these sentiments that like, there's no other way you're going to learn this, whether you succeed or fail. And there's lots of failure in our business in every respect. And I would always try to embrace failure and learn from it and grow from it. Um, and, and that's why I took the leap. I was like, once I had met with David and Cameron, I thought, who, who else am I going to talk to? Like I'd read every biography I could find on producers of theater and about, you know, looking at, at books about theater. And obviously I try to go as much as I, I can, but it was time to take a leap. Right. And see, that's similar. You, you kind of almost have, have a proof of concept going, see, I can do it. Right. And that's how I felt similarly with before they were them is, as I just went, well, you know, no one's going to believe that I can do it unless I just do it. But at the same time, you're using this money to invest in yourself as well. And actually funny that you said you brought up the Mel Brooks the Mel Brooks rule, because that was my next question was the golden rule in producing in Mel Brooks's producers is never put your own money in the show. And, but did you also like seek out grants and finding donors? Like, was that something that you started right away? I ne I didn't start right away. I never, because I really stuck to commercial models. I never really got into grants. And I mean, I did, I certainly have worked with nonprofit organizations and worked on projects where we did seek out grant money. Eventually I did get into more of an investor model and right. I'll make a fine point about this to those produ producers out there, emerging producers what I learned very quickly was um, people invest in you. If you try and explain musical theater to somebody and you try to explain the musical theater deal and how bad it is and how risky it is, <laughs> there's no reason why any sane person would, would take a risk. But what I found was, and I find this permeates a lot of successful producers, people get excited by you. They get excited by your enthusiasm, your passion, your love for what you're doing, the work, all of the hours and time and effort. And if you've done all that work and you then take that out to people that have the means to do it, I've always found that they've invested in you because you just, it's still unknown. I mean, I mean, you still have no idea. And I think the producers very much live the entire journey. Uh, with the writers. And it, it, even though things, you know, can look very successful and, and come from a way, it's still an outlier. It's not the norm in terms of the success that has happened with that, with our, with our show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's, 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 um, you know, people are going to take the risk on you. And if they lose, that's okay. Like they have the means to, they know what they're getting into and they are, they are um, guided by this this love and respect for you as a human being and want to see your success and sometimes that starts with family and friends and then you build out right from there 
Well, a thing that I noticed that probably was possibly attractive to the donors that you're reaching out to was that a lot of the shows that you produced early on were Canadian premieres like Dogs Eat Dog, Love Loss, and What I Wrote. And you even brought Jason Robert Brown to Canada for his Canadian concert debut. Like, were you trying to fill like a noticeable gap in independent commercial theater? Like, do you, why do you think that didn't exist? Yeah, I think one of the things that Toronto, because we had, you know, Live End had burnt out, but, you know, Mervish has at that time very large theaters mm-hmm. that had to be, you know, a certain kind of show to succeed that sort of, and then we've got these incredible independent theaters, um, you know, across the city and not-for-profits um, doing different work that, that is, you know, just incredible. But there wasn't this idea of an off-Broadway commercial um, area. And that was, there was, you know, that was something that I was interested in. And those were calls that I would get from New York from a... Uh, an off-Broadway producer, a New York producer, you know, that's what sort of kind of happened with Love Loss and What I Wore, that like, you know, we're really interested in in Canada, you know, we think you're the guy to do it, that that I co-produced with with the just magnificent Daryl Roth, mm-hmm. um, who's an extraordinary producer on Broadway and off. And um, those things kept happening. And then it's like, you believe in the work, like things come to you in different ways. I, I was very aware of Dog Sees God, but it was Ben Lewis who who was cast um, in in the sh- in that show. But he was a recent grad of the National Theatre School that I knew, and he wrote to me and said, "Are you interested in in producing this?" and And I was so glad that he brought that to me in that way because um, it's probably one of the productions I'm most proud of. And if you look at I just love that show and what it had to say about the world and and young people and and also the cast that you brought in wasn't half bad either, eh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was such a great group. There was that Degrassi sheet. It had been done with a very starry cast in the right. U.S. and then and then I sort of looked to Degrassi, the Next Generation, which I'm not uh, guilt. I, listen, I love Degrassi. I yeah. love Degrassi all it's the a way. Canadian through. staple. A Canadian staple, loud and proud. So it was. A, <laughs> It was a bit of a dream for me to bring that group of uh, Degrassi actors together and others to do that production. But nobody else was producing Dog Sees God. Like you didn't, you didn't, you didn't see any other professional theater company that was taking on something like that. You know, you speak about you speak about like believing in the person and investors and private donors. They come and they they be in the person. So, and I would assume that's getting people involved in your cast. I mean, as I said, with Love Loss and what I wrote, I mean, you had, I mean, Andrea Martin, Cynthia Dale, Louise Petra. So you're getting all these people. So they obviously believe in you. So what do you think one of your core competencies is? And what do you think a core competency, meaning, meaning what do you think something you're good at is? And what do you think a producer should be having? Like, what, what do you think a good trait of a producer would be? I think the best thing a producer can do is hire the best team and get out of the way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when you look at the art, the artistic endeavor that you that you want to produce, a you have to believe in it. You have to have a connection to it, and then you have to hire a team that you trust, and that's from stage management, cast, directors, designers, etc. Trust them. That's where you're doing the most work. Is making sure that those decisions are the best decisions that you can make. And then you get out of their way. You support them. You listen to them. When things go sideways, which they always do, when, when things need to go over budget, you make sure you have a team 
that you trust so that when they say to you, look, we're going to give you, you know, the Ford, the Cadillac and the Rolls Royce. What do you want to spend to make this decision? Here's the parameters. You know, that's good stage management, production management. When you have a director you trust that says, we need more tech time. We need more time in rehearsal. We need to spend more money on this. Or I I think we need this person, you know, so you make those good decisions. So you have people you trust so that when you're in the crunch and all the intensity is happening, um, you can make the really good decisions um, versus the worst decision, the best decision of the worst decision. So that's number, that's number one, because number two, while all that is going on, you have to sell the show. So, you know, you've got tickets to sell and every seat that's empty, you have to sell and market and advertise and uh, PR and, you know, budget, you know, make sure that you're, you're keeping your investors updated and engaged. Your job is, is huge as, as the producer. And I don't, one of the things is, you know, I'm, with new work, it's different. I only want to be in the rehearsal hall when the team says I need to be in the rehearsal hall, I'm not a guy that sits in the rehearsal hall all day. I mean, I've got, I mean, I've just got other work to do on a show. Of course. So to me, those are the, those are the things and those are two really important things. And then I think all you have is your integrity. You just want to be a good person. You know, I, I try to be even keel. I try to be, um, um, kind, I, I try to understand when people are having a bad day and not overcorrecting. Um, I try to respond to that there may be things in people's lives happening off stage that you need to be human about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an ever evolving thing, but I always want to try and remember that. And I, and I, um, deeply value those relationships that you develop with people. I, I, you know, I love people in the theater and I have tremendous respect for everybody that has a job to do. Um, you know, your crew, your stage management, your actors, your front of house staff, wardrobe, everybody. I, I am so grateful and indebted to their artistry and craftspersonship and everything that they do to make it happen because, one thing we, you know, a lawyer, you have clients, maybe you could be in isolation and I don't know, but, but this theater thing does not work without a group of people. It, it, just, it doesn't work. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen. It cannot happen. And that's what I love about it. Can I, what, one other thing I want to say is, and I think this is the great fortune I have to be in an academic institution uh, as you know, in terms of my you know day job, so to speak, is the capacity to continue to learn. Like you know, being in the room with young people when you're doing a new work, and you know, it's trying to see the world through another pair of eyes or listening to a viewpoint, especially right now. And you know, we may get into that later. Mm-hmm. I try to continue to be open to learning. And 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 humble and 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 open to you know hearing and being corrected and called in. I mean, I think you know, I think the theater is such a good thing, and you want it to be as good as it can be. And I think we've realized recently 
um, that we, we, we've, we've not gotten it right and we've, we've left voices behind mm-hmm. and we've marginalized voices and um, we, and, you know, people in, in, in my position, we, we, we have to do better and we are. I 100% agree with you. And it's unfortunate that it's taken this long for a call to action. But I think taking the responsibility and learning and educating ourselves is the most important thing we can do. And and these voices that you were speaking about, you know, these are important voices that need to be heard. And it's important to step back and start to listen and put our money where our mouth is and really start making a change and making the change now. Something you touched on earlier was how it's such a collaborative process. And something that I learned in Anna Winter's masterclass was that you need a room full of diverse opinions that aren't filled with yes men or yes women because it actually narrows the perspective on the viewpoint on the task at hand. So is that something that's important when you're choosing a team, when you're producing a show? Well, let, well, let me adapt that to directly to doing new work. The best idea wins. Oh, 100%. It has to. And that's, that's where you're, the best discussions are heated and lively and, and people just not stopping, throwing out ideas, pushing. Let, what if we went here? What if we did this? What if we thought about this? And then you get to that magical point where everybody, it doesn't matter whose idea it is, if you've got the right team, and you all come around and you're like, oh, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's those are the best. Parts I think those are the best moments too, because you start to work together and discover the best way to tell this narrative and how much it can evolve from the original idea too. Is I think another really cool aspect of it. I mean, when we were doing before they were them, Jake came up with this great idea. I mean, you know how great Jake is. He came up with this great idea where. Arena would stand beside a TV and it would look and she would laugh and it would look as if she's being interviewed from you know the people of the outer world and and. It, I ended up calling um, Graham Norton's agents because I thought, you know, Graham Norton's kind of this niche guy and he kind of has a different talk yeah. show from everyone else. Anyway, the point is, is that I ended up getting in contact with his agents and ITV, I got led to ITV and it ended up going to be costing like 1800 yeah. US just for to use five seconds. And, you know, Jake came up with this other great idea where he said, well, what if we put a picture frame with like these kind of like Broadway bulby lights and have a sign that says coming soon. And we have her like kind of posing and joking in front of it. And it's like, wow, that is actually the better thing. And, and who knows, maybe having an actual celebrity in a song about celebrity stories could have devalued the experience for the audience. And, uh, you know, it also shows maybe the most expensive idea doesn't always mean it's the best idea. Yeah. And that, and that's why I think, you know, you, you want to have those, you want to work with people that, you know, do speak up and do, and do challenge. And, and, and I, and I try and do that, you know, as a producer with writers respectfully, I, I say, you know, the lawyer in me cross examines and likes to ask a lot of questions of writers about, you know, why they've chosen a lyric or a moment or a song or a character, you know, so I, I, I do it with kindness and, and respect because I'm not a writer. And listen, I admire writers and composers beyond, beyond. I think it's the hardest thing to do. And I, I don't have the discipline <laughs> to sit down and do it. I, I would throw my hands up. Uh, but I, so I, I revere writers and composers and uh, I always just want to be respectful and, and I want to help them, you know, find their vision. Because sometimes I feel writers in their heads, they have, they have a list of 200 things. And I may try and 
ask them questions about four of those things to bring it to the forefront. Right. And I usually find when something's not working and you have a discussion with a writer, a writer will then like, you know, articulate it or, or you know, share with you what they're thinking. And usually it's like, what you just said is incredible. I'm not sure that's on the page, but what you just said is just awesome and you're feeling it. How do you get that? And then, you know, they can sort of see the clarity because there's so much in their heads that they're trying to get out. Right. You know? Exactly. Okay, so I want to get to this little game thing that we call, that's called Radio Play. So it'll be, it'll just be individual questions, little ones, and it'll be this or that, this type of thing. So let's, uh, let's get radio play. Okay. So what time do you wake up in the morning? Uh, 5.30. Oh, see, but you, I only asked that question because most successful people always wake up around four or yeah. five. That's why I asked that. I'm a radio- rare theater guy that loves the morning. I yeah. love the morning. And the morning is nice, especially with coffee. Radio or music? Oh gosh. That's so hard. Okay. I know you listen to Sirius, don't you? I know. I'm a huge Sirius fan. I'm going to go music. Oh, go okay. Okay. Favorite lyric from a music theater song? Oh, gosh. These songs. Okay. Um, Say this one to the end if you want. No. You know, um, I, I got it. I, I got it. I, you know, I, it's gonna, I, now I feel cliche seeing it. Being alive. Being alive. I, I just... It's everything we need to be. Current favorite song. Current favorite song, yeah. I am so into, and we're going to be working with them, um, Twin Flames, uh, a song called Human. Um, um, Look them up. They're uh, Inuit, Indigenous, uh, husband and wife. This song, Human, their album, Omen, living for it. Twin Flames. Unlimited budget, what show are you producing? A limit. I haven't produced like a full professional production of Les Mis. I can do it on limited budget. Ooh, love I can that. Do it. I can Most do famous it. person you've ever met. Um, I hope he's going to be the next president of the United States. But I, I was on a flight with the former when he was the former vice president, Joe Biden. Okay, and okay, now with the most famous person in your phone. The most famous person in my phone. I'm just going to say, I'm going to, because I actually was his lawyer for a period of time. And I also um, was obsessed with him, Colin Wilkinson. Oh, I love that. Um, uh, performance you wish you could relive? Performance? Oh, seeing Colin Wilkinson play Jean Valjean at the Princess of Wales Theatre. Oh, well, yeah, of course. The thing, the reason that got you in it. Biggest pet peeve? Um, hypocrisy. Last book you read? Last book I read, um, I'm, I, I'm, I read a bio on Cy Fuhr, who was a, a Broadway producer, How to Succeed in Business. And then the name of it is on How to Succeed, but Cy Fuhr's book. Uh, ideal Friday night. Uh, just, just, just home on the couch and just decompressing from the week. Country you'd like to visit. Um, I've been very, very fortunate to to travel a lot, but um, I'm really fascinated. Vietnam. I really want to visit Vietnam. That's on my list as well. Funny enough that you say that. Okay. Two more. Scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? <laughs> and so you're asking. Uh, if my family's listening, I'll be humble and say six. Ooh, okay. Um, if you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? 
Oh, just any time? Any time. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to make this for, I, I wish I could go back to university. Wow. I could be that specific. Yeah. That's so great. Okay, actually, I, one more because I, I, um, I always want to ask this one. Uh, yeah. If you were given the opportunity to fly into space, given today's technology, would you do it? No, I'm too scared. You wouldn't do it? I think I I don't know I don't you know what I don't know if you could you could get me on that shuttle I'm telling you if if there was a new musical about it though you'd be in it I'm telling you oh okay listen <laughs> if you were gonna do the first musical in space I would want to be at it or produce it I'll give oh, you yeah of course if, yeah. This, if that were the stakes I'm in ooh so it's worth the risk of your life this is how much this guy loves the theater okay great that's, right. that's radio play so kind of on how working with new writers like so tell us a bit about how the Canadian Music Theatre Project like comes to exist. I'm sure it's like an extensive, an extensive journey. So, so tell us a little, a little tell us a little about how we kind of end up with Come From Away and it ends up, you know, becoming this huge success. So I think I, ha- I always have to give Jim Betts this credit as I see as like one of the fathers of Canadian musical theatre. I, I don't think I was, you know, I was love the mega musicals. I grew up on the 80s poperas and um, I... You know, um, Jim was was again leading another resurgence of uh, Canadian musical theater, and I got involved in an organization called Script Lab, which was devoted to um, you know working on new musicals by Canadians, and uh, became president of the board of that organization. And this was about in t- 2005, 2006, and we put together in 2006 like a Canadian musical theater festival. It was a week. And it was a lot of work to put that on, a lot of grant money. And I think when we walked away from it, it never happened again because it was just so hard to make it happen the first time. And we didn't have a musical, a theater that was devoted to musical theater. Now, Musical Stage Company was, you know, rising. And and Mitchell certainly uh, was, was, was starting his work, which is so critical right now in our country. And um, so When the opportunity came up at Sheridan, one of the things I was being tasked with was transitioning the three-year advanced diploma to a four-year degree. And every degree program has to have what we call a capstone project. In animation, you do like a two and a half minute animated short. What would we do in musical theater? And the the belief was we would have our students, because you have to apply the skills you've learned in the previous three years, how do you, how can we best do that music theater? Well, working on a new musical, this idea of like, you can't go to YouTube, no cast recording, you got to use all those skills. So parallel to coming to share, and I had had this idea for a very long time about, um, as a producer looking for subjects to do musicalize, and I was thinking of ideas. And I've always had this philosophy that you need two things to make a great musical. You need a great and compelling story and you need a compelling reason to musicalize it. Like, like why are we musicalizing it? If you don't have a good answer for that, I think you get lost. And for me, I could not get the story of what our fellow Canadians did in Gander and the surrounding towns. Every time I read that story, tears would flow. And I was just so proud to be a Canadian. Like this exhibited the values I think that we have and aspire to have and maintain. And as we know, Newfoundland, they tell their stories through music. It's their DNA. That's, that's how they tell, that's how they share their history. So I sort of believed that there was a musical there. I would listen to great big C on repeat and the great Newfoundland legendary band and think of the music and 
read the stories and just believe this was it. Now, there was a lot of people that didn't agree. You know, I went to writers that I thought might be good people to champion a musical, writers and composers. You know, at the time, a lot of people thought it was a tasteless idea. How could you do a a 9-11 musical? And Mm. I believe musical theater is one of several opportunities to preserve history. And 9-11 was so tragic. And we know a lot of the theatrical community lived in New York. It was going to be very, very difficult to to write this. I mean, the the trauma involved in that day, which I cannot imagine. Mm -hmm. And I thought, here was a story, here was a story about it that was full of humanity, that showed another side on that day that I thought was an important story to record. So months before I came to Sheridan, I'd seen my um, mother, my lesbian mother. My Jewish mother's wicked, a Jewish Wiccan wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to have that title down there. The, down, the down. both of us are just like, like a mouthwashing thing. I know. I, should, I used to have that down. <laughs> So many things in my head. And I was floored. It was a new musical by David Hyde and Irene Sankoff, uh, autobiographical. David uh, played himself narrating the musical. And David, I remember, made a speech at the end of it talking about thanking the audience for supporting Canadian musicals. And I remember writing them that night. I saw it late in the run. I I just loved the authenticity of it. I I was so floored by it and said, you know, we have to know each other. Like, like, let's go out for dinner. Like, you know, who are these people that that are passionate about Canadian musicals and written this, this great, this great musical. And I I guess it was a little while later, we went out, we, we hit it off. And three hours later, at the end of that dinner, I said, you know, I've been trying to find people to write this musical about the events in Gander, Newfoundland, 9-11. David loves that music. They're like, oh, we'll look into that. And they were really into it and loved the idea of pursuing it. And I was coming to Sheridan. I knew I wanted to test out this CMTP thing. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, we're going to work with a group of you and do 45 minutes. And as you know, that's exactly what we did. You know, I didn't want to do it in a studio theater because I was worried people weren't, you know, this was part of our theater season. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's do it downtown at what's now the CAA Theater because I thought nobody would come. So we did that there. The, you know, the, the That's right. We did the Panasonic concert. concert. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then I, you may not remember this, but like I put like 30 chairs in that studio and then because I thought nobody was really going to come. Then 40, then 60. It expanded then every show. 70. It was like we couldn't get jam any more people in. And you guys put on this, you put on like 42 minutes. And then I think it was David that said, oh, and we have another song. We're not sure where it's going to go. And you did Costume Party. Like I remember that in that first version of it. And you definitely knew it was something special. You felt it in the audience. You felt it, you know, you you, you could see. But but no Canadian theatre was interested in it. Nobody... I thought a Canadian theater would be interested and that would be it, but there wasn't. So I said to David and Irene, why don't you come back and we'll continue to workshop it and, you know, develop it. And it, and and of course it went to good speed and part of their new musical festival and then came back to you. And you were in a very unique position where there was a couple of you that did the first workshop and then did what became a studio production directed by um, the brilliant Brian Hill. And I don't think we, I don't, we didn't intend it to be a production. I think we intended it to be a stage reading, but when Brian and David and Irene came back from Goodspeed, because they were all working at Goodspeed, 
you had been working for two weeks and were off book. And it was like, <clears throat> let's just put this up and see what it is. And right. um, as you know, it was extraordinary. And then, of course, it got into the National Alliance of Musical Theater Festival of New Musicals. Fellow producers, learn about NAMPT. If you don't know about NAMPT and you're interested in producing musicals, namt.org. They have an annual festival where they showcase eight new musicals, 45-minute format. And at NAMPT, you know, it was very scary because who know who knew how to be received? It was in New York. We wanted to be respectful, as you know, come from way, well, as you know, as a lot of people now know, I say yeah. this to you like I'm going back. <laughs> like we're back in like, yeah, the time machine. Yeah. Nobody, knew, nobody knew about this thing. But as most people know, there's a lot of humor. And I think there was a concern about being in New York and how would that all play? Um, it was such a beautiful reaction to the show. The, the connection was extraordinary from those the that industry audience. Well, and you talk about it being such a sensitive subject and being respectful when you go to um, when you go to New York and you do NAMP. Like, what's the strategy of picking like an out of town tryout when you go to Seattle, La Jolla, Washington? Like, what, what's what's that situation? How do you choose? Are you choosing just like blue states or red states? Like, because I know I know Dory Bernstein when they talked about the prom they went to Atlanta and she was like, I, you know, we don't know how this is exactly going to be received. So I wanted to pose that question to you. Yeah, well, I think this is where, this is where the brilliant Junkyard Dog production stepped in. Um, Sue Frost, Randy Adams, uh, Kenny and Marlene Alhadith, who uh, had a big hit with Memphis, um, you know, won the, won the Tony for Best Musical. And, um, you know, Sue and Randy come from not years of experience at not-for-profits um, that had developed new musicals. And, you know, they had a great model with Memphis. Memphis had a long out of town, um, gestation at n- number of theaters, but I think they were not sure. I don't think any of us were sure. Was this a Broadway musical? Like who knew? Like, I think I, you know, I can only say for myself and certainly with Dave and Irene, there was a lot of giddiness being like, can you believe this is happening? Like, right. this is like, are, are you like serious? Like, is this really happening? Um, Tony award-winning director now, Chris Ashley, come on board. And, and you know, um, Chris, of course, the, the artistic director of the great La Jolla Playhouse. So I think it made sense to, to start there. Right. Jenny and Marlene are from Seattle, Seattle and had a, 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 have a very personal relationship with the city, of course. And the Fifth Avenue Playhouse, which which um, supported development. And then the Seattle Playhouse, or the Seattle Rep, sorry, Seattle Rep Theater, then co-produced the world premiere with La Jolla. So it was just to get it in front of an audience and see, and Seattle Rep, they had sort of not done musicals in a while, but La Jolla, you know, has a long story. Jersey Boys, yeah, it's of course, yeah. Of doing new musicals or launching musicals to Broadway. And when I sat and watched that first opening night at La Jolla, it was living a dream. Your show had been Broadwayfied. It's the only way, it was like an outer body experience watching this. And it was so emotional and so beautifully overwhelming. And I remember going back to see the show the next night and realized I'd missed 80% of it. I was so caught up in the emotion. I didn't have anything useful to say to anybody. You know, I have this creative consultant role uh, in addition to one of the producers, but I didn't, I didn't have anything constructive because I was so, it was just a dream. 
And you knew right away, which had sort of set the journey. Every time that show opened, as soon as it opened and hit reviews, it's even more importantly, word of mouth, the show sold out. I'll never forget being at Seattle Rep and a guy holding a sign on a piece of cardboard, you know, looking like need one ticket. Like just pleading. You're kidding. There was actually yeah. like people being like holding oh, out yeah. signs. Yeah. You, you, cause you could, it was just sold out. Like right. as soon as it would open, it was sold out. And it was, it was, it was really interesting to see it with American audiences. And then Sue and Randy and Junkyard Dog really, you know, said, look, we, we, it's important that we share this with a city that, that was impacted. Like if we're on a journey to New York, it was very important to share it. And um, it was shared obviously in Washington, DC. And that was very profound. And, and again, it was so embraced. I will remember during that run, it was the first time it was um, going to be performed on 9-11. It had never been performed on 9-11 to that point. And I remember flying in, you know, flying into Washington that day and driving to the theater in a taxi and you go past the Pentagon. And one of the things about Come From Away, and it was very moving that day, uh, being at the Ford's Theater, um, Lincoln's box as well, let's sort of they preserved the wall and, you know, recreated it as it was uh, on the day he was assassinated. There was so much. And one of the things that I have to say is really been enriching on the journey is listening to the family members of people that perished and listening to them talk about the little crack of light this show has opened on such a dark day. Uh, I know the cast and creative team got to visit the Pentagon and the Pentagon Memorial. I know there was a a dress rehearsal or or a private dress rehearsal for first responders and those at the Pentagon that wanted to come see the show. Wow. And, you know, again, this is, you know, Junkyard Dog has just lovingly cared for the show so compassionately. Um, Everybody has, everybody that works on it, like every single person so compassionately. And I, I think we can never forget that there, th- this is about real people, that lives were impacted in such a huge way. And I, I feel so grateful to count them as amongst, some of them as amongst friends, or I'd even say family as part of this come from away family, and to listen to their stories and, and about the people they lost and to hear the word healing associated with the show. I mean, nothing is ever going to um, heal entirely, but this, this little bit of healing and crack of light and certainly heard a lot of that in Washington was very profound. Then the show quickly wound its way to Gander. I think which had to be, the highlight of doing two concert presentations in the hockey rink, sharing it for the first time with the people like this, you know, bigger than the New York times. This was the test. This was the audience, like watching and feeling the energy of 2,500 people. So it was 5,000 total got to see it, but feeling the energy, the last five minutes of that show on their feet. um, I'll never forget it. And the fact that the community provided that validation and the fact that the community felt that 
David and Irene had somehow managed to tell 17,000 stories. Yes, you know, we ha- there are characters that are highlighted, of course, but you felt community. And uh, I'll never forget that. And then, of course, we came to Toronto to see that show in the Royal Alexandra Theatre. Uh, that was another full circle. I was going to say full circle for you from being struck by lightning by this candlestick to now. I have to tell you to, 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 to the tech runs and, you know, just being in that theater and just, and, you know, every time since the, the, the generous staff that work there, Mm. the crew, um, it's such a, it is like, it is, that was my childhood dream that I never imagined would ever I don't know. It was a dream. So to, to open at the Royal Alexander Theater, to have my family there, to celebrate it with friends, celebrate it with you. So all of that was a dream. And I'm grateful to Junkyard Dog and the creative team and everybody that believed in it and, and, and gave it all the love. And then I tell you, the Royal Alexander Theater was the dream. And then we end up on Broadway. Right. Which, again, was like... That, you talk about dreams, then there's fantasy land. I remember one of our last dress rehearsals were for, for first responders for New Yorkers, and there were grown men in their, you know, firefighter's uniform with tears rolling down their eyes. I'll never forget. I'll never forget that night. And then I'll just tell one more quick story, like just the opening night story. Like then just like, you know, what was going to happen to this thing? As Canadians, you know, there's been four shows that have gone to Broadway before, Drowsy being the most successful. Mm-hmm. I felt the entire nation and musical theater industry and our students just rooting for us. You felt that and everybody wanted this to do well, but you had no idea. Like you just didn't know, like that's Broadway. You talk about investors and you know, it's such a gamble. You just don't know. And even though everybody believed in the show and it had been so successful, smashing records on its way, you didn't know. And so the opening night was thrilling. Uh, my parents were there and I, I read, I don't want to, <laughs> I won't give it, I won't say from who, but there was one negative review and I read it in the car uh, on the way to the party. And I said, you know, I'm shutting my phone down. You know what? If, if this is like, if this is going to end quickly, I want to have, I just want to enjoy this opening night party. I've this is fantasy land. I cannot believe this is happening. It's so surreal. And then I remember uh, later in the party, someone tapping on my shoulder and saying, the New York Times review is in and it's great. It's a rave. And it was the New York Times critics pick and it was a rave review. And I just broke down in tears. I was inconsolable for 20 minutes because I knew what David and Irene had achieved was going to blaze a trail for everybody back home. I I knew what it meant to my students, to our industry, to our country, that this was huge. It was just so great. And I see that inspiration in the Canadian musical theater every day and, and all the people that have been a part of it and continue to be a part of it, you know, like, Kevin Wong, you know, who, who, who I know you champion, um, and so many other writers that I think, you know, there's a shift. And, and part of that work, too, is, is from the Musical Stage Company and Mitchell's work and that regional theaters have started to, you know, program in a big way Canadian musicals. Like now, looking back on all of it, it's, it's surreal. 
What a journey that show has been on. And so interesting to hear you speak about the different experiences in each in each city that it went to. And I hope that guy in Seattle got his ticket and someone gave it to him because it would only be in, it would only be in the theme of the show. Um, but, you know, that's one thing, you know, that it's not only just because I've been a part of it, but I think for all Canadians in music theater, how proud we are to have that show, you know, to have that on stage at the Tony Awards. It's, you know, it, you, it's similar to it's similar to how you wear a Canadian flag on your backpack. It's, you wear it as a badge of honor. And I think that's what Come From Away has done for the Canadian Music Theatre. And, you know, that doesn't happen without you. So thanks. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to ask you we, uh, just a few more questions here because uh, we are running out of time. What is your profession's greatest challenge today? Um, inclusivity. There, there, there's just no question. This we we need. We have not given people the opportunity, BIPOC community, to tell their stories the way they want to tell their stories and with whom they want to tell their stories. And it's something that I've been engaged in that we put on pause and we got to do more of. But is at the CMTP, we were working on something that we were calling CMTP 2.0. Mm-hmm. You know, Sheridan has had a windfall from Come From Away and. I believed and the college agreed that we should reinvest that money uh, into BIPOC writers to um, allow them to do the work that they want to do and provide the support. And unfortunately, people from those communities don't always get the opportunity to fail. And a lot of white people like me and and writers um, do. And, you know, developing new work is all about failure and learning from it and getting to the successes. So that is the biggest challenge. Um, We need to remain vigilant and we need to remain um, um, committed to championing those voices. I'm very excited about it. We have some things in the works and uh, you know, I look forward to sharing more about that, but that is really where, you know, my time is, is um, you know, centered in thought about how do we have more storytellers and, and, and provide those opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let's hear that Joe Biden story. Okay, here's the Joe Biden story. I was on a flight from Toronto to, I guess it was Philadelphia. I was going to see a new musical that Neil Bartram and Brian Hill had wrote at the Delaware Theatre Company. um, And uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. And it was a small jet. And um, this was a private trip. I used the points and, you know, was sitting up front. And it was me and one other guy that was sitting up front. This the, Invic- the Invictus Games had just ended in Toronto. So I, when I get on the plane, I like to queue up the, the movies. So as soon as we, we get up in the air, I can watch it and don't have to sit through the commercials. So I've got Julia Louis-Dreyfus on my screen, and I'm ready to watch episode three of Veep. I'm all good. And Jill and, J- Jill and Joe Biden walk on the plane. And I am just like, this is un believable. And since there's nobody else in business, I'm like, they're going to sit like it's, there's only three rows. They're going to sit. I'm going to get to talk to them. And to be quite honest with you, bandstand fans, Jill Biden has done extraordinary work with veterans. And she was a real champion of the musical bandstand, which I loved. And she spoke at the Tonys that year in 2017, come from way was at. So I thought my way in was to talk about bandstand and hear her about her journey with bandstand. That's what I wanted to talk about. So they, they got on the plane and they keep walking and they sit in the front, the first row of economy. And I'm like, are you kidding me? 
this is like this. He'd been out of office for seven or eight months. Um, this guy had flown on Air Force Two, like the second greatest plane, like ever. in the world yeah. ever. And there they are, humble, like no attention, just go there. And I say the flight attendant, like, you know who that is, right? Like you're going to ask them to move up, which was completely self-serving and selfish because I just wanted to have a conversation. And he says, yeah, yeah, I'll go speak to the pilot. Speaks to the pilot. The flight attendant goes to Joe and Jill Biden and says, hey, do you want to move up? And they're like, no, we're, we're good. We're totally fine. Wow. Okay. This story is so important to tell now because it's like, there was like, this is just who they were. They were like, you know, no worries. So the plane lands, I keep looking back, they're sleeping. Like, it's nothing interesting, but I'm like, I can't believe I'm on this plane with the immediate former vice president and second lady of the United States. So when the plane lands, we're told police are going to board the plane to escort the Bidens off. Oh my God. So, so I was like, fine, whatever. Right. But the Bidens had to get past myself and the other guy to get to the front of the, the, the plane. So we were standing in between them. And the vice president just looks at me and says so sheepishly, he says, I'm so sorry that he's got to like pass by and butt us. And in my head, kind of like that round of radio round, um, I'm trying to think, what do I say? Like, what do I say? Right. And all that I could muster up was, I think you've earned it. Like, I was just <laughs> like, what? it's, you know, and I didn't want to ask for a photo because I felt, you know, it's kind of a, and then, so, and Jill, it was, they were just so kind. Like, they were so nice. And they walked off. And of course, as soon as we got off, I was actually stopped because actually the police officers were in security were taking pictures with them. But oh, I wrote yeah. a social media post about this and I said, I guess it's the closest I'll ever get to flying Air Force Two. Well, my hope is in the near future, I can write, talk about this experience and says, I guess it's the closest I ever got to flying Air Force One. Oh, but that's God. that's that's my Joe Biden. Joe and Joe Biden. Yeah, wait, 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 who's the most famous person you've met? Oh, God. I, I honestly, I don't even think I've met anyone famous. Like, I've met athletes, but I don't, I don't even know if I would consider them famous. They're just good at a sport, like, I guess. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know. Who is the most famous person I've met? Oh, maybe Jimmy Carr. Do you know who the comedian is, Jimmy Carr? <laughs> I don't. And like, he laughs don't. like he's got a very infamous laugh. He's from the, U- the UK. I think that's probably been the most famous person I ever met. I mean, I, but I, I don't think I've ever met it's it's actually such a weird thing. I don't think I've ever really met anyone famous. Michael, I seriously can't thank you enough for coming on here. When I first had the idea of this podcast, you were the first name I wrote down as a guest. I'm so appreciative of you, of what you do for this country in the theater. We need more people like you. You inspire students. You inspire people who are working professionals, seasoned professionals. Really, seriously, I can't thank you enough. And Thank you so much for coming on here. Thank you. And you know, I love and adore you and everything you're doing. This has been super fun. This is really, was really nice to connect like this. Thank you. Okay. Well, we'll see you soon. Okay. See you soon. Take care. Take care.